Greetings, everyone. Welcome to Satiate, the Boulder Nutrition Podcast. I'm Sue Van Rays, your host, functional nutritionist, food psychology specialist, and founder of Boulder Nutrition. I also lead women's wellness and yoga retreats, both locally and internationally. You can find out all about me and my work at bouldernutrition.com. My inspiration with Satiate is to offer you functional nutrition and well-being insights, to share with you case studies and stories that can act as salve for your soul, to introduce to you some of my favorite experts and special guests from all over the country, and to give you an opportunity to satiate your body, mind, heart, and soul. If you love this podcast, I would be so grateful if you head over to iTunes, subscribe so that you get updates on the latest episodes and leave a review. That way I can get the podcast out to those listeners who need it most. I am so excited to introduce to you today's special guest on Satiate, Elise Muselis, a dear friend, a peer, and a great inspiration. Elise holds four certificates in holistic health and integrative healing. She is on the Environmental Working Group Board of Directors and has been a National Institute of Health grant recipient for five years in a row. A sought after speaker, she is also the host of the popular Once Upon a Food Story podcast. Her work has been featured in O, The Oprah Magazine, Forbes, Health, Self, L, Well and Good, The Chalkboard, Mind Body Green, and many other outlets. You can find out more about Elise at her website, elisemuseles.com, which I will link in the show notes. And be sure to check out her brand new upcoming book coming out this October 2021, Food Story, Rewrite the Way You Eat, Think, and Live. I hope you enjoy today's episode. Thank you for joining me today on Satiate Elise. It is a pleasure and honor to have you on this episode. Well, I'm so happy to be here, and I know that we're going to have a great conversation. We have so much in common and share some similar philosophies. Yes, it's great to have a kindred spirit in in the field together. I love it. So why don't we get started with just a little bit about your story and your work and what you're focused on lately? Okay, that sounds good. And please stop me if I go off on tangents or for too long. Yeah, I I doubt it. I am certified in nutrition and eating psychology and Before that, I grew up in Los Angeles, and that probably says a lot about just the culture I was raised in, and I went to law school, and I practiced immigration law, and had two sons, and at some point I realized, this isn't really my calling. You know, I've been passionate about health and wellness my entire life, and when I say passionate, I would say that it wasn't always the healthiest passion, probably passion could slightly obsessive, you know, obsessed with, um, and that's not necessarily a good thing, you know? So 
Um, but I was always interested in health and wellness. And then after I had my kids, it was really hard for me to be in immigration law when the laws became more stringent and a lot of the cases I was working on ended up, you know, having outcomes that separated the families. And, you know, I, I understood that there were legal reasons, but it was just really hard for me, like emotionally to be in that space, especially after having become a mom. And so I left my career in um, law and I was with my kids for a while. And then, you know, I just kept having like that nagging feeling that I have to formalize this passion. You know, I was always talking about, you know, food and just, you know, becoming healthier. And I was thinking about it. And I think I was probably pretty annoying to almost everyone around me, <laughs> but I was the person <laughs> that people came to for advice. What yeah. do you think? You know? And so it just has been like, ingrained in my being for so much of my life. So then in 2010, I um, went and got my certifications and I did most, I worked mostly with like what to eat, you know, like lots of, of greens and smoothies yeah. and, you know, all of that. And then I was, you know, I, I felt really healthy. I felt like a good example for my kids, but I was still very preoccupied with, I'm going to say being healthy, you know, like it was just, I was obsessive about it. And I put a lot of, um, pressure on myself to follow the perfect diet, you know, to figure out what's the perfect diet to feed my family, you know, the perfect food. And I'm using perfect because I now look back and say that I struggled with like what I've coined eating perfectionism. And so I knew that like, the what part was important, you know, what we were eating, but there was a missing piece of the nutrition puzzle. Yeah. And so then I have a feeling you have a little bit of a similar experience. So then I read this book by someone, you know, Mark David called the, ah. slow down, the Slowdown Diet. It really had a big impact on me. And it wasn't a diet at all, by the way, it was much more about thinking about our why and how, how we eat. And it was the first time I really started thinking about it, but I read this part that talked about how um, stress affects us, you know, and stress is self-imposed stress. So that perfectionism, you know, that eating perfectionism really was a stress, you know, I was worried, thinking anxious thoughts while I was eating and it was affecting my metabolism, my digestion, my nutrient assimilation, and like putting me in like that low level fight or flight. And it was such a huge wake up call for me. And I just was like, wait, this isn't just me. This is a lot of the people, mostly women I was working with were also, you know, under this kind of stress. And so I knew I needed more tools to heal my own story, but also to help others too. So I became certified in eating psychology and just a little side note, they didn't have a virtual program when I read the mm -hmm. book. And so I called and I, I was like, well, do you think you're going to be having a virtual program? They, this is 2013, I believe. And they said it was in the works. And I was literally the first person to sign up when they announced it. Oh, it that's a, amazing. Like a Friday afternoon at 5 p.m. You know, I called and like 
I didn't even think twice. I knew that I needed it. And I knew that it was, like I said, the missing piece of the nutrition puzzle. And so since then, you know, I, I could go on about my story, but I'd rather like talk to you. But since then, I really started realizing that it's not just like what's on our plates, but it's also what's in our minds. And that oh. has like been a huge foundation for my work and for myself too. And it just, it changed everything when I, you know, realized that our internal dialogue, our insides really have to match what we're doing on the outside too. And I'm saying like, if we think we're doing all the right things and eating all the right things, we also have to be thinking all the right things too and believing those things. Absolutely. Yeah. So that's, you know, I just, and ever since then, I've never looked back and I, you know, I've just been able to support people in such a profound way. And I know that there's a lot of crossover with the way you support people too, but it just feels really good to be able to help people um, feel much more of that inner peace that we, we all really crave. Yeah. Yeah. It's such an interesting distinction too. I, I like your eating perfectionism that you coined. It really was that. It was all this pressure to, you know, find that perfect diet and eat perfectly yeah. and, you know, show up. It was this pressure to be a perfect role model, to feed my kids perfectly, and also to be an example for my growing community that I had at that time. Yeah. And it was so much pressure that I put on yeah. myself. Yeah. Have you ever had like run into a client at the grocery store and they like look in your grocery cart, you know, what are you getting? You're the nutritionist. And I know that's happened to me and it's like a lot of pressure. And I think it's interesting because somewhere between being a human and also wanting to walk the talk, there's like the perfect middle ground, but Mm -hmm. it's hard to know that in the beginning, like to kind of navigate And to also give ourselves space to like soften around some of these very hard rules that we get infiltrated with in the media all the time. Mm -hmm. I'm so curious about mindset. When we first met you and I talked about mindset and how that's become just so integral in your, in your work and in your business and in your writing, let's go a little bit deeper into that. Like, what can you tell me about? about what you've learned about mindset and how we can retrain ourselves around our thoughts. Because I know some days my thoughts feel out of control and messy and critical, and it takes a lot of work on those days for me to try to wrangle them back to something that is more neutral even, or peaceful. Mm -hmm. And often our thoughts are our biggest obstacles in life and eating Mm -hmm. and health. Mm-hmm. What can you tell me about that? Um, well, well, there's a lot to unpack, there, but, <laughs> but, you know, I was going to say that just because like we have the tools and we know, you know, that those thoughts are harmful, it doesn't mean that you can't have them. Right. But I think that the difference is because we all have them, you know, especially I, I think over the last year and a half with, with things feeling so out of our control, like sometimes, you know, it's easy just to be more critical of like the things you can control or or things about ourselves to refocus on that. But um, so that's the first thing is just acknowledging that it's not like they're going to vanish and you're never going to have them. But I think the difference is just having the tools to be able to like observe them and to recognize 
this mm -hmm. isn't helpful. This is critical. This is, you know, this isn't really me talking or how can I, how can I learn from it? How can I reframe it? You know, I think that the, the reframing is huge mm -hmm. too. And, and even when things don't go exactly as planned and you feel disappointed in yourself, like this, this has happened to me recently, even, even saying things like, what can I learn from this? So it's not saying I'm not disappointed because that's like, I don't know what, what you want, but that's not real. You can't, right. you're allowed to feel disappointed in yourself. You know, you're allowed to say, I think I would do it differently next time. But I mm -hmm. think by looking for what can I get out of this instead of it just being like a complete fail, right? Mm -hmm. Oh, this is fail. I'm going to beat myself up too. Um, the other thing that comes to mind is to say, just because I believe something, it doesn't mean that it's true for me now. Cause we all have like yeah. these limiting beliefs that like, they're just ingrained in us, you know, like they've been such a huge part of our, our being that we, we don't even realize we're having them. That's actually one of the chapters in my book is about limiting beliefs because mm -hmm. we all have them, no matter how evolved you are, we all have mm -hmm. them. I was actually being interviewed yesterday on a podcast and the, and the person who interviewed me is someone who she's extremely like politically correct and, you know, evolved and would never say anything that was offensive. And she's just, I, I really res respect and admire her. And she made a comment that she's like, I'm, I can't even believe this is crossing my lips, but I sometimes still think skinny taste. What is the expression that skinny tastes like skinny tastes better than whatever it is she's about is, is, to eat. Do you know that expression? I forgot it exactly. But I don't know that expression, but I know what you're trying to say. Yeah. And yeah. And it's like choosing basically restriction over pleasure or over satiation or nourishment. And yeah, but she doesn't even use that word in her vocabulary anymore, but that is something that she, that she heard over and over again, you know, repeated yeah. the media or whatever. And yeah. so every time that she will go, let's say she's stressed and she goes to eat something that she knows she, it's not going to take away the stress or make her feel better. That phrase that would never come out of her mouth now, you know, she, it still pops up in her head, you know, so mm -hmm. we have, we have all these thoughts and I think when you can become a little bit more of like an observer of those thoughts too, mm -hmm. and it's really helpful because like I said, they're not going away, but the way you respond to them can change. And that doesn't mean they don't ever go away, but they'll pop up. You know, did you, yeah. I'm just curious, like, especially in the last year and a half, did you have things pop up for you? And you're like, whoa, I thought I was past this point, you know, and I can't believe oh, I'm yeah. thinking this now. Absolutely. I think the level of uncertainty and stress that we've all been under throughout the pandemic in various forms has definitely, for me, it's definitely pushed me um, to explore some of those thought patterns that have basically resurfaced within the uncertainty, within the stress. Mm -hmm. And also the way to cope with that stress in a way that's healthy has been challenging for me and for so many people, um, like comfort food, for example, or an extra cocktail or whatever right. it is that we can to take the edge off, you know, mm -hmm. and, um, and just to really witness what's going on in, in my body, 
I was just talking about this yesterday, actually reminiscing back to the quarantine and just noticing that first week that everything shut down and we were all like, what is going on? Right. The I, we were going to have two weeks, right? Yeah. We <laughs> thought we were, we literally thought, I remember thinking we were going to extend the kids spring break by a week. Right. That's who we, that was the plan. That's crazy. Right. Here we are so much later, but that week, my body was in such a fight or flight response that I could barely eat. And it was so interesting to witness that, like, this is adrenaline overriding my system, shutting down my hunger. Mm-hmm. And it's only happened to me in really big, intense times, like throughout my divorce that happened to me, um, where I couldn't eat and big challenging times with my kids where I haven't been able to eat, but only like a handful of times in my life that I can really go back to where it's been like multiple days in a row where it's just like eating just is such an aversion. And I think, you know, with stress comes so many things that we don't always link up and that we don't always understand completely. And, and then you throw some anxiety ridden thoughts on top of that. And it's just, it's kind of a nightmare. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so- one of the things, the exercises that I do myself and I have people do when you have like that barrage of anxious thoughts is, or you're beating yourself up is actually to write it down because there's one thing to have that like monologue in your head and you're just like, you know, there, there it is. There's that bully again. Right. But Mm -hmm. then when you write it down, you're actually like looking at it and you're like, is this real? Am I really talking to myself like that? And there's something really powerful about seeing your words and then asking yourself, is this how I would talk to a friend, a loved one, whoever, my child? No, no, no. Right. And so we just, we, we just have to have like, have tools that we use to disrupt the pattern. And that's yeah. really, that's what I think. So maybe writing wouldn't work for you, or that's just not realistic, or you're in the moment and that's not how, you know, but just find something where you can create that space between like what you're saying, you know, and, and what's going yeah. on. And so you can be that observer and flip the script. Absolutely. And I think like disruption is such the perfect word because we can disrupt ourselves in so many different ways to create a break or a kind of pause in the thought pattern. And I have this client, she may very well listen to this episode, but she many years ago was really working with her thoughts around food and body and stress. And I remember her coming to my office one day and sharing with me this thing she was doing in her office in the middle of the day when she started to go down the rabbit hole of negative thinking and criticism and self-judgment she would literally just clap and say, stop like out loud. And (laughs) I I love that actually, but you know what? That's, that takes a lot less effort than actually writing it down. It's a good one. Yeah. I mean, but it's just like, that's what she had available to her in her, in her little office at her desk. I love writing myself. And I think it's a great way to kind of purge and to get Mm -hmm. those thoughts on paper and at least kind of your body. Yeah. And see what they're actually saying. Sometimes I think that we're so muddled in our head that we don't even really have the ability to decipher what it is that we're saying to ourselves. Writing it down is profound, but disrupting. I mean, sometimes I just like get up and go get a glass of water even. And it's just like disruption from the, the pattern of sitting and 
listening and being kind of consumed by that in your head, it's so powerful to disrupt it. Yeah. I mean, for me, I mean, this isn't always realistic, but just getting outside Mm. major walking, you know, that just walking or like seeing nature, nature is for, for me, one of the biggest ways that I can reconnect and, you know, just get perspective. I think a lot of it is we get in the cycle. And so that's why the, the clap, the, the water, the taking a sip of water, just anything that breaks the cycle is what you, what, what you can do. So again, like, I think the big thing is not to have the expectations that you're never, ever going to have, um, a negative thought, you know, or, or let your mind go there, but you can create tools so that you can become less reactive. Right. And, and, and observe them. Definitely. It's, one of the most powerful places to focus, I believe in our lives, whether we're focusing on our health or overcoming another, you know, area that's been challenging for us. I think working with our thoughts is so, so integral. And with that, let's segue from there, because one thing I love about your work and some of the things that are upcoming and even your podcast has a lot to do with food stories and I'd love to hear a little bit more about that. And then maybe something about your food story, your own personal food story that has been monumental. So um, as I mentioned to you, I was seeing a lot of clients and you know, this was around the time that I was getting certified in eating psychology and you know, realizing, okay, this isn't just about what they're eating. You know, we got to get into the how and the why and dig deeper and peel back the layers. And so people would come in. I'm like, tell me about your relationship with food. Mm-hmm. And you've probably seen this too. Like I would get the same response, like the shrugged shoulders or like the hand up and say, oh gosh, you know, like let's not go there or wow, that's complicated. And it was almost like they were up against a wall. Like it was a dead end. And so I knew that I had to think about it in a different way, because when you ask someone, tell me about your relationship with food, at least back then, that I think that the folk, it became like the person thought about themselves and food, and it was sort of finite, right? And so I started, you know, just thinking about how can I reframe it? Because a lot of it, even if I wanted to elicit the same like, a, you know, a, a response to this similar question, I had to say it in a way that felt more inviting and, and people didn't feel closed down. And so I started thinking about, there was a lot going on about story back then, it's 2013. Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, wait, we have a money story. You know, we have a life story. We have a food story. And so I just was like, okay, so what makes up a food story? There are themes, you know, there's different characters there's plot twists, there's villains, (laughs) true, right? There's heroes. Yeah, absolutely. Right, you know, there's chapters. And all of a sudden it becomes, it feels more like, you know, there's more flow, there's more movement. Like I said, it's not finite, you know, because a story is always evolving. And so I tried it out. I said, tell me about your food story. And people would say, I never thought of that. Like almost everyone, I never thought of that. And so I just started working with people on their food story and we would think about all of those things I just mentioned, first memories, you know, like what are some of the pivotal moments? Mm-hmm. And 
what ended up happening is not only did they feel more open and intrigued because a lot of times we don't think that far back and we don't put the pieces of the puzzle together mm -hmm. in doing this work. It helped people release a lot of like the shame and the blame that we have around our food and eating issues. And so instead of like, you know, I, I do X or I do Y, whatever it might be overeat, restrict, whatever. Um, it was like, aha, now I see why I do that. It, it could be tied to an event. It could be tied to a parent and the way that the parent, you know, ate. And for me, so like to weave in a little bit of my food story, when I was, I tell the story in my book, but I'm, I'll give you like the Cliff Notes version of it. When I was nine, I went to the doctor and I got weighed you know, that cold scale. Oh, yeah. And I still remember, I don't remember every single detail, but the doctor said to me, and, and I, I wasn't like, I should even say that I didn't like, I, I don't think that I had a really big, I don't even like saying it because I don't even know how to say it the right way, but I wasn't, you know, I didn't have a, problem that prevented me from doing anything. And I didn't feel bad about myself or anything like that. So the doctor said, if you lose five pounds, you can get your ears pierced. You know, back then, like we got our ears pierced at the wow. doctor's office. And it was just, it was huge because it was like, oh, I, you know, this is something that I, I need to think about. I have to eat less and exercise more or whatever they told me. And then um, at the same time, my dad was, had this terrible habit that he was very unaware of, of sleep eating. Wait, is that like he would sleepwalk and eat. And so he would wake up and feel terrible about himself. And so to prevent him from that, he locked the refrigerator and the pantry at night. So it had absolutely nothing to do with me or my siblings or anything like that. So he locked the pantry. He would give my mom the key he, before he would ask us, you want anything before I lock up, <laughs> you know, every night. And it just, even though like nobody had any bad intentions, by the way. And I like to say that right. because there can be a lot of blame that we feel towards like the messages and the lessons that we were taught in our childhood, but it just gave me the message that food was best kept under lock and key. And so my story was a lot about control and I didn't know that. And I didn't put the pieces together. I just knew how I behaved and I felt bad. And at some point I realized that it wasn't sustainable or healthy, but I, when I unpacked my food story, I realized how profound those things were, you know? And, and yeah. like I said, not, not poor, like bad intentions. So, um, I also went to an all girls school where there was a lot of emphasis on how you looked and your short skirts and all of that stuff. And like I said, that I grew up in LA. So all those things really like played a huge role in, you know, that phase of eating perfectionism, which lasted for quite a long time. Um, so anyway, I don't want to, I want to stop for a second and see if you have any questions or you want me to go on or. Yeah, no, I think it's really interesting, this example, because it's like partially what we interpret, but it's partially what's going on around us that we really don't have control over the messaging, the doctor. I've had a few clients that have similar food stories to the doctor's office that I'm appalled by yeah. in 2000, 
you know, 20. And it's like, really, there's still that conversation going on at doctor's offices. That's blows my mind Mm -hmm. that we're not more sensitive to like the impact that has. I mean, I've heard food stories that people are getting from someone they're dating in college, making a comment, you know, that changes their entire life trajectory around food and body or, you know, whatever's going on in our environment. And we're just absorbing that like a sponge without really having really any influence over how that even became um, in our field. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's a really good example, like of looking at some of those early memories, those early paradigms of belief that became our structure of how we relate to food in our bodies ongoingly. And it's, so I I really appreciate that. Some of it has to do with our own internal dialogue. And some of it has to do with our external circumstances. And I think about part of my food story, completely different, but growing up in the eighties or seventies and eighties, and, you know, there was a lot of dried sugary cereal, like a lot. Fat free, free, like, yeah. Cereal was like anything could any, it it spanned from like lucky charms all the way to special K, which was like, remember that commercial, you can't pinch an inch. Uh And I mean, I don't know how special K managed to make themselves into a health food brand, but regardless, I am extremely hypoglycemic. And so eating that food every day of my life as a child, toast and cereal for breakfast, you know, really impacted my metabolism and my chemistry. And I became like completely malnourished and underweight and ravenous, like ravenous all the time. I was also an athlete. So I was always starving and I wasn't getting enough of what I needed. And so I was always coined as this like human garbage disposal that could just eat and eat and eat. And everyone was always like kind of noticing it, making fun of me. You're always hungry. Why don't we stop eating time to stop eating, you know? And it's like, I was listening to my body cause I was so hungry, but no one was really picking up on why. And right. once again, product of that time product of what was around me and mm-hmm. what I was fed at the dinner table or at the breakfast table. And you know, it's just so wild when we start looking back at those elements that have really like woven together to impact who we are today as eaters and as people. Yeah. And it so becomes, I really appreciate it. Yeah. It becomes part of your identity too. Also. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So I feel like when people can recognize like those pivotal moments, you know, and those things that you only see looking backwards, that it really does explain so much about your beha- your current behaviors or your behaviors and patterns and thoughts that you have had, you know, for a while. And, and so like just a couple other examples, just to help our listeners maybe think of their own is like, I had a client who she was a, um, like she would sneak food. And mm-hmm. so she, it, you know, I, I said to her in our, she said, I can't do this anymore. I always feel bad. I beat myself up and, and, you know, but when it happens, like I'm almost, you know, it, it's like rote, you know? And I said, well, when did it start? And she never really made a connection of like when it started, why it started. And she realized like in our sessions together that it started when she was, her body was changing during puberty and her dad was uncomfortable with it and he would make comments. So then she felt 
shameful about it and that he was watching her and she shouldn't eat. And so then wow. it, she sne- she was sneaking food, but she never, she just knew this was a behavior that made her feel bad and she beat herself up. And she had this like very cyclical relationship with the whole th- pattern, you know, it just kept repeating itself over and over again. And, but when she realized where it came from, it was such a like aha moment for her. You know, sometimes like, yeah. you were, you mentioned that people don't even realize those like little traumatic events that happen, you know, in childhood, how that impacts you. I had a guest on my podcast who talked about when she was in kindergarten being teased on the bus by the boys and them calling her names, you know, and that completely changed how she related to food and her body. Kindergarten, you know, so. Oh yeah. It goes so far back sometimes. Right. Right. But I think that something important to acknowledge is it, it's not like this, it's great. It's really good when you can um, like understand where it came from and that's part of the healing process. And it could be one more step towards, towards, you know, reconnecting with your body. Yeah. Reconnecting is such a great word. And I also, another one that comes to mind is like forgiving ourselves. Cause like we're products of our environment, especially when we're so young and we don't have, you know, control over all those different things in our homes and in the, what we're getting, the messages we're getting and the conversations we're having and all of that. So I, I absolutely agree. One thing that I would love to hear about, I was reading part of your book, which we'll talk more about later. And, um, there was a story that you have in there about, an aha moment when you were at an, a dinner at a restaurant with your current husband, um, now husband, I guess then it was like, you were maybe not married yet. You were right, right, dating right. and it really struck me because I think it, it really spoke to the, one of my missions is to help people feel like they can live their life and not be consumed by always thinking about food and body. I feel like some of my clients get so consumed with their thoughts around food and body that they're missing out on like whatever's going on around them. They're missing out on the beauty of life because they're Mm -hmm. so stuck in this trauma space around eating. Can you tell us a little bit about that experience? No, I love that. That's your mission because, you know, when I've been writing a little bit, like, why did I write this book or people ask me, and that's definitely like, we want to have food help us live our best life, not control it. You know, and I think that that's, that's one of my missions too. So we overlap in that way. Yes. Sure. I will take you back to this celebratory dinner gone bad. <laughs> so what happened is we were dating my, I'm going to, he was, it's so weird to say boyfriend because he's my husband now, but my, right. my then boyfriend, not husband yet, you know, and we were serious. We had already talked about getting married. We had talked about having kids. So, you know, we were very like far in our relationship. And I was graduating from law school and he made reservations at this place that takes like three months, you know, and it was fancy schmancy. I want to say, because it just wasn't like really my speed. And back in the day, you know, I was very worried. What am I going to eat? And it was, you know, they serve, I don't, I'm not sure if you can order, but whatever. Anyway, it wasn't really my style. And I was worried about, if I was, the food was going to be food that I was allowed, you know, my own self-imposed rules. Right. So while we were at dinner, um, he, he kind of just for the first time like lost it, you know, cause watching me push food around my plate, 
not wanting to eat the cream sauce that came with, you know, one of the courses that we had and, and not like probably scout, you know, not looking like I was enjoying myself at this celebratory dinner in a very special place. And he just said, I can't do this anymore. And, you know, he said, we, we've talked about having kids and like, I don't want to teach my children that this is how, you know, how you relate to food, you know, that it, you look at it with fear, it, you're not enjoying your meal. And he grew up in a family, like totally different family where food was just pleasure. And, you know, and it was, it, there weren't crazy restrictions and rules about what you eat. And so we ended up breaking up. And, you know, when I actually, I write about this in the first chapter of my book, I mean, I, it really, I had a lot of ahas writing about it more than I had realized, you know, and that's why I always suggest people write things down because it, it's, it just, it's different, you know, it feels mm -hmm. different in your body. But what I realized then, aside from being heartbroken and like, is that we think we're alone in our thoughts, right? We think that, you know, if I have, if I look in the mirror and I'm not happy, if I am running carbs through my own mind at a meal or like saying, I'm not going to eat that or you know, whatever it is, you know, we think that they're our own thoughts and they stay within us. But the truth is, is that it, the way you, you are around food and anything, like it's all energy. And so that translates to the people you're with. So it was like, I wasn't using the words food story, but now I can say your food story is not your own. You know, just like you're influenced, you, you influence others by your food story. And here I was stressful thoughts and negative, you know, and that stress was transferring onto him and he was feeling it. And it was really the first time. And there was such a high stake involved, you know, meaning like totally the person I was supposed to marry. And so I went back to California and I, um, and I really, I don't think I said to myself, I'm going to heal my relationship with food. I'm going to heal my food story, but I knew I had to change. I knew that I couldn't be so preoccupied and rigid and, you know, uncomfortable around food and that I needed to do something different. And one of the first things that I did, and I, I'm sharing, I don't, I don't think I shared this in the book, but I, I really got into cooking. I, I think that that's a great way if anybody mm -hmm. has like food fears or like they just don't know how to feel comfortable or relate to food in a deep and meaningful way. When you cook your own meals from like start to finish, you buy the ingredients, like you, you connect to it in a different way and you feel more passionate about what you're eating. You know what's gone into it. You also can put what you want into it too. So cooking was such a major part of my healing. That's amazing. I've heard that from a lot of people. And one of my most influential mentors, I guess we could say, or yeah, is Brie Maya Tiwari, who talks about cooking as one of the most impactful ways for healing healing ailments, healing our relationship to food and body, just getting in the kitchen, getting intimate with our food, whatever that looks like. And even if it's simple, you know, mm -hmm. and yeah, that's a so good point too. It's yeah. I mean, it's like, I think a lot of people get daunted by cooking if they don't have a lot of experience or practice or they're, but I mean, I always am thinking to myself, like there's some days where I 
don't have time to cook elaborate meals. So it's quick and easy and simple, but it's still healthful and enjoyable. And I'm still intimately connected with the food. Mm-hmm. And then other days where it's like, oh, I'm going to get super involved in this whole process and, you know, make a bunch of food. And, and that's a different kind of creativity as well. And they're both equally as impactful, I think, in our healing. So I'm so glad you brought that up. And I do think that that deep connection is with food can come really well in the kitchen, really efficiently Mm -hmm. in the kitchen. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And also this wasn't really part of my language back then, but something that was really, really helpful for me is to learn to slow down, you know, while eating, because (laughs) I mean that so many of us don't do that. And, you know, or we have the phone out and we're multitasking and, when you are present with your food, it's just, it's a whole different experience. It's a, like, we're talking about connection. That's really how you can connect. And we all think we have to be productive and do other things, but I, I think it's pretty productive to eat a meal without distraction and to actually know how it feels in your body. And so that's it. That, that's another really big way to heal your food story to play a more active role in your food story. Absolutely. So with that, let's talk a little bit about you're talking healing your food story and I'm talking, I want to talk about rewriting our food story. Mm, And I know that you do teach this and I know that this is integral to your work. And I also know it's a really big question. Um, but I've worked a lot in my own self in rewriting my story, uh, my personal story. Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, there's some things that really work and there's some things where I'm still like, how does one rewrite our story? And so I'm curious with you and your work specifically around food, how, how do you coach people around rewriting their food story? Yeah. So sometimes I, I worry about that word because you, you know, you do want to acknowledge like your past your past happened. So it's not like, you know, and it's a part of who you are, but I think it's empowering to know it doesn't define you. You know, it, it is, it is a part of you, but that doesn't mean that you can't evolve and change. Um, that is what my book is about. (laughs) So first I'm just going to say that. (laughs) And I think if like anything, you're not going to change happens and it's probably more sustainable when it happens slowly. So that doesn't mean that, you know, you're going to say, okay, I'm going to figure out my whole food story. But every time you think about something that happened or that was a pivotal moment or meaningful, just even a meal, like it could be positive too. You know, a food Mm -hmm. story is filled with, with positive experiences also. And I want to make sure that people understand that, but every time you think of something or you have a conversation like we're having right now, you'll, you'll learn something more about yourself. You know, like I'm always, every time I talk to out loud, I, you know, there's one, there's maybe I might have the same story because it's my story and I'm telling the truth, but there's, always some little thing that I'm like, oh, you know what? I hadn't really thought of it this way, or I hadn't even really realized that. So I think that the first step is just not to put pressure on yourself that you're going to suddenly change everything overnight, Mm. or even that you necessarily want to change. But so I, I think 
discovering your food story has to be the first step. And it's probably the most uncomfortable one because we are peeling back the layers. There might be some traumatic events. And when I say traumatic, it, it doesn't necessarily have to be like a big major trauma with like that capital T, you know, it could be something like that school bus situation or the doctors, you know, that was a trauma. And the trauma, when I say trauma, I'm just saying the events in your life that affected you in really deep ways and stayed with you. But yeah. so I think like the, if I, if someone's like, well, I don't have a food story. I'm going to first say, yes, you do. Everyone has a food story, everyone, you know? <laughs> yeah. And for some people it's more distraught and for others, it's kind of, you know, a little more even keeled and boring. But, um, you know, when I say boring, I don't, I'm uneventful is really the word. Yeah. I mean. So, yeah. um, the first thing is maybe just think about some of the themes you have to start somewhere. So that's usually where I said, what are some of the major themes? Like I shared with you, one of my major themes was, you know, the story of perfection, constantly looking for the perfect diet to have the perfect body. And that was going to make I me, mean, I feel so stupid even saying it out loud, but this is the belief I had way back, mm -hmm. when. you know, and then, or maybe you, your story is I feel overwhelmed. I feel overwhelmed by all the information. I feel overwhelmed by the thoughts going in my own mind. I just, this is an overwhelming topic. There's so much out there, right? And then you shut down. Or maybe it might be later, later when the kids go to college, later when, you know, whatever is going on, like, you know, when, when I get the raise, later when I'm in a better financial situation, later, 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 right? But, and that becomes your story. Or maybe, you know, your story is that, you know, um, you, you I, I don't know how to even label this, but this is with a lot of people that they want to start over, you know, every Monday, every New Year's, whatever, you know, every month, it, but they're, they're constantly, putting it off. And then like, it's almost like all or nothing, you yeah. know? So hopefully some of these themes resonated with the listeners, but it's really, if you identify your theme, then it's, it'll unfold other parts of your story. And so another thing you can do is write down those limiting beliefs, even if they feel so silly and like, you know, mm -hmm. they're, you know, they're not true, but you know, carbs are bad right? What, what are some of the other limiting beliefs you have that dry? I don't believe that by the way. Um, no, but, a lot, yeah. but a lot of people do. And so that's why I brought that up. Cause it, or like you mentioned the, the area you grew up and I grew up in where fat, uh, in your food meant fat on your body. Like we know that's yeah. not true. And I love fat and healthy fat, like, is, you know, it keeps you satiated to tie it into your po podcast. Um, <laughs> but so really to understand where, what are your limiting beliefs? And so you start pe like getting into like, what was your first memorable meal? What were some of the messages you got, whether it was from your culture or your family members, the diet culture that, that were part of like, you, you know, what were, what were those messages that were part of your, um, childhood and, you know, and maybe even later in life too, who are some of the people that you follow now on social media and you feel like they have the answers and you don't necessarily have them, you know? So you start just asking yourself those questions and really like un unraveling, like how, you know, what, what did your mom, like, your, your parents or your caretakers, what did they say about food? How are they around food? That will 
probably reveal a lot for you. So anyway, those are some of the questions you can ask to discover your food story. Um, and then we use the word reconnect. I'm going to put that back into our, our um, language here right now, because so much of what happened disconnects you from your body. And yeah. so now you want to start feeling more reconnected. So slowing down would be maybe a really super easy way to start reconnecting to your body. You know, noticing the first question you asked me about the thoughts, noticing your thoughts, that's another way to really reconnect to your body. Yeah. Asking yourself a question that I know you like to ask is how do I want to feel, right? Yeah. And love and, that question. Yeah, it's so good. I ask that a lot to myself and in throughout my book. I just ask because that puts, it empowers you. So those are some of the ways I know we can, if you have anything to contribute, I'm sure you help clients and yourself, you know, change, rewrite their stories. Um, yeah. I mean, I think that a lot of what you're saying is, is similar. I also, I also think that there's some layers for me around acknowledging where I didn't have power at certain points in my life for whatever reason, whether it was because of my age or the situation I was in. And it's like a reclaiming of the places we can shift what is going on around us. So like, for example, like what you mentioned about distraction mm -hmm. stands out really strongly for me. And it is hard to trust our body when we're basically really disconnected kind of to come back to that same languaging. Mm -hmm. I'm guilty of having the phone out, which, and I, and the reason I want to bring that up is because a lot of people are, you know, like it's, oh. it's kind of like an extension of us, you know, and it comes to the table. And so I started, you know, sometimes I'm better than other, but, but I started plugging my phone in while I was eating upside down and just like a counter far away, it, you know, or it's not, in, in my house now, I do, in my old house, I did it in the other room, but in my house now, because of the setup, I just put it, you know, far away on the counter in the kitchen, silent mode, upside down. Yeah. And it makes such a difference though. You know, that oh, like, such you, a difference. I mean, and there are a lot of statistics on, on how that distraction, the multitasking, all of that is just so uh, so disruptive to, um, being connected right. to your body during meals. And I think that what's interesting just for listeners too, is what I've noticed is that being free from distraction when we're not used to it is terrifying for so many people. Silence is terrifying for so many people. Quiet is terrifying or uncomfortable. And I know when I've had clients that are really used to distraction, especially around mealtime, and especially what turns out with people who often live by themselves, and maybe that um, quiet space can be a little overwhelming at times during meals, you know, they're comforting themselves by listening to something, reading something, watching something, taking that distraction away and having someone left to sit with themselves is I think takes a little practice. And I just want to say that because I know that it can be really uncomfortable for people to listen to their body at first. And mm -hmm. it takes but, a little, it's like building a muscle. Yeah, I agree with that. And also you don't, it's not like you have to be completely still and silent and like, right. you know, chanting or whatever, or white tablecloth out. I mean, you really, it's really just about 
being able to bring your attention to what you're doing and to the sensations in your body. So you can have yeah. music in the background. So it was kind of interesting. Um, I did a social media post on this recently and somebody wrote um, in a comment that when they watch violent movies, like they've gotten into the habit with their partner of watching violent movies, they notice that they eat way more. Interesting. Yeah. Like probably stress eating. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I was thinking if that's true, then what about putting on soothing music? Would that Mm -hmm. have, and I'm not saying to eat less, but would that have that like calming effect, you know, so that you're not eating out of stress. So it is something I, there's probably some research on it. I didn't have a chance to research it yet, but I was just thinking how it just, it's amazing how all those external the sounds, you know, and things that have nothing to do with us that are affecting our choices. Definitely. All these subtleties can really be like, what I've been really looking at lately is like micro habits. So they're not just like so overwhelming all the time to like make these big gargantuan leaps, kind of like what you were saying about gradual. And it's like, okay, just a meal here and there free from distraction. If you're new to it or slowing down, little bits at a time or adding in something small to kind of move towards, you know, something that feels more integrated, but it doesn't have to be so big all the time. And I think we're such a culture of like, everything has to be so big. And so like, you know, take these big leaps and bounds in our transformation and our health and our healing and our whatever part of our lives. And it can be so daunting. It's nice to kind of, for me, it's been nice to come back to like, let's just take a little baby step. Let's just take a little micro habit and see what yeah, happens. I agree with that. I think micro habits are huge. And I, I, it's funny, I didn't use that language at all, but I, I, I feel like it's easier to do small things throughout the day than commit to huge, massive things. And also when you do these small proactive things throughout the day, it helps keep your mood and your energy and everything elevated. You know, yeah. it's like you wouldn't, eat breakfast, right? And expect your breakfast to keep you satiated and full and energized all the way till dinner, right? You eat throughout the, you know, a couple times during the day. And so when you're doing other things, you can't expect like your morning movement or your meditation, like to last till six o'clock. So I think having these little micro habits and, um, you know, movements or whatever it is built in can be, really, really helpful for people so that they have like clarity and focus and, um, awareness, you know, that throughout the day. Absolutely. It's, it's good to remember that, that it just can be like these little things that we add in that we don't have to be, that don't have to overwhelm us as we're getting used to that. Maybe the, the new routines and the new things that we're working with. So totally on board with that. Okay. So I am really excited to talk to you about your new book. And we've been alluding to that a little bit throughout the podcast, but it feels to me like a perfect expression of you. And I've really enjoyed reading the copy you sent me. And I just would love to hear a little bit more. Tell us, tell us about the book. 
so so much of what we talked about today is really you know what goes a little more in depth but is in the book this is the type of thing so you know i've just i've had this book inside of me for a long time i wanted to help people too many people struggle too many you know we talk about it and both of us had our own you know unique but similar struggles and i just wanted to put work out there that could help more people than I could help, you know, one-on-one. So the book is called Food Story, Rewrite the Way You Eat, Think, and Live. It's to help you rewrite your food story, which you discussed. It's divided into two parts. The first is the food story method, and that's really to go deeper into the conversation that we had today and to help people with where they are now. So it's not just looking mm-hmm. back and reflecting and having these ahas, but it takes, I, I like to say, you don't just read the book, you actually have an experience with a book because there's questions for reflection. And then there's also exercises to do. There's fun things, you know, and it's just, it's not just reading you, you are engaging with the book. Yes. And then the last, the second part of the book are recipes and rituals. So it's not a cookbook. And I just want to like be clear. So people don't expect that, but there are, I love the recipes in here. There are 36 ish, probably a little more because one, the smoothie is seven ways, but there's 36 recipes (laughs) and they're all divided by mood. Yeah. I love it. I I love that. There's seven moods and they're the moods that I felt like people through the years have really like that they want to feel, you know, Mm -hmm. goes back to how do you, I want to feel. And there are some rituals too, but the recipes the approach that I took, which is, you know, the food mood connection and, and having the recipes all divided by these seven moods is because I felt like the person who is reading my book has been through a lot already. You know, they practically could write their own food blog, right? And so I wanted to do something different and I wanted to find a way to, for the reader to feel empowered. And so instead of thinking about the things food can do to you, like, will I feel bloated or will I get tired or, you know, whatever, you know, fill in the blank to whatever your thoughts are before you eat a meal. I wanted the reader to think about everything that food can do for you, you know? I love it. Yeah. And so it's just like that subtle shift that makes all the difference. And um, it comes out October 26th and it will be wherever books are sold. And I'm really, I'm just really excited for people to start sharing their food stories more, thinking about their food stories. And like I said earlier in the episode, to allow food to help them live their best life, not control it. Oh, that's so beautiful. I love what food can do for us is such a great reframe going back to the beginning of our conversation. And it's subtle, but it's, it's, it's big at the same time, because we're looking at from such a different lens of, you know, how we can use food as a healing opportunity, how we can use food to strengthen ourselves in different ways. And we can really accentuate these moods and foods. And I love that you put the recipes, which are also heavenly looking by the way, and gorgeous, um, into these categories. So I can't wait for your book to come out and for people to start sharing their food stories, because what an amazing mission and collective thing for people to do to come together and acknowledge that our food stories are so dynamic and so diverse and they have so many different characters and they have so many different chapters and they have so some of it is so positive and we have such fond memories when we look back 
of like, you know, big family Thanksgivings or whatever it is that might be part of your story. And then at the same time, you know, looking at where the little stumbling blocks are and where those beliefs come in and where they originated from and how we can shift out of some of those things that are expired in ourselves. Like I think of that a lot when I think of looking back and seeing these old beliefs and how they just sometimes expire. And that's a great way within who we are now. And it's like, so we can reclaim these parts of ourselves that have gotten so bogged down by those belief systems. And what a beautiful mission. I just, I just love it. So Thank you so much. And thank you for holding space for me to share it and also for your mission and for you having all these interesting conversations with people on the podcast and helping people, Mm -hmm. you know, helping people feel better in their bodies. And we ask a lot of the same questions and I love that we're on this journey together. I love it. So I just want to make sure people know where to find you a little bit about your podcast and then of course, food story, your book available. I'm sure at all the places you buy books as soon as the end of October. So tell us about your website and podcast and the best way to find you if people have questions or they want to listen to your beautiful episodes on the podcast and learn more about your work. Thank you so much. So I am, my website is elisemicellis.com. I used to, it used to be kale and chocolate, but I change to my name and that's for another time. Um, I'm, on, <laughs> I'm on Instagram and that's probably my baby of all the social media, but I'm on Pinterest and all the social media channels, but Instagram is definitely the baby, you know, where I put more time and energy. And my podcast is called Once Upon a Food Story. And I have interesting guests sharing their food story and their expertise. And it's not, you know, it's just conversations. You'll feel like you're sitting down to coffee or matcha or whatever with us. And we um, just talk about, you know, their backgrounds and aha moments and like what usually brought them to where they are and what they're doing today. So uh, that's been really, really fun because there's only so much you can say in a blog post or a caption, but now I have the book, but, you know, to go deep and have these conversations with people like you're doing. um, I think that's really one of my favorite ways to connect. Mm -hmm. Podcasts are so much fun just to connect with other people and share. And it's such a great platform of, you know, a way to get our work in the world and to have fun doing it and meet other people along the way. So one question I love to ask at the end of my podcasts is what does satiate mean to you? Mm, that's so I'd love good. to hear your answer. Yeah. Okay. I, I, I'm so curious after what it means to you, but for me, when I think of the word satiate, I don't, it's not necessarily from food that can be mm-hmm. part of it, but it's about being fulfilled. Like mm-hmm. fulfilled is emotional it is it can be physical too you know it can come from food because i do think food can bring on those feelings but it's not exclusively food it's really feeling satiated with life you know and whatever lights you up nature your dogs you know a connection with someone else and so bringing all of those experiences together makes you feel satiated i love it thank you for that you can find Elise at at kale and chocolate on Instagram. You still have that handle, which is a beautiful Instagram. Uh, 
So definitely check her out and follow her there. Well, it's amazing to have you. And I am so glad that we've connected and I really look forward to future collaborations. And thank you for taking the time to join me on Satiate today. Thank you so much for having me. I love what you're doing and I appreciate you. Thank you so much for joining me today on this special episode of Satiate. I want to send you off with wholehearted wishes for your health and happiness and that we meet here again very soon. Thanks for listening.
Thank you so much for joining me today on this special episode of Satiate. I want to send you off with wholehearted wishes for your health and happiness and that we meet here again very soon. Thanks for listening.